Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Ariana, head of biological sciences at Colossal Biosciences. And they discuss how Colossal is working on bringing woolly mammoths back from extinction. The role de-extinction will play in conservation in the future, and the DNA editing and printing technology that's being used for de-extinction efforts. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. You're resurrecting woolly mammoths. There's no slowing down. I encourage you to speed up. How long, Ariana, until I can have a pet woolly mammoth on a leash hanging out at my farm? Well, hopefully they won't be pets, right? I mean, I think the the reason why we're pursuing this is because we want them to be free and wild and not uh, pets. But we have a six, seven year timeline for our first calves. uh, And that is also mostly because they're long gestation time, at least elephant gestation time, which uh, can be up to 22 months. Yeah, they are very, very special creatures, the elephants. Very interesting and very unique and just very loving as well. (laughs) I'm very fortunate to be working on this project. And yeah, our mission is fantastic. Just blessed to be working alongside so many talented individuals to uh, make this happen hopefully very soon in the the near future. If you don't have them at the farm or raise them and then put them in the wild, how do you get them into the wild? Do you like take them as infants and just throw them in the wild? That's an excellent question. To be quite honest, I think my uh, day-to-day duties involve science at the molecular level. And so I feel like I would leave that aspect of our project and mission down the line, especially uh, in a few years' time, to experts. (laughs) I am by no means an expert in that area. I would say at the beginning, it makes sense for them to be nurtured by uh, other elephants with partnerships uh, like zoos. But once we have a sustainable population, I think it, it makes sense to think uh, how to ethically release them in habitats where they would survive and thrive. At least scaling up will take a little bit more time. As I said, I'm mostly concerned with uh, basic research and the scientific, the molecular biology side and genetic side of it. Uh, and then I w- we will leave all the great uh, animal husbandry and uh, animal work to experts who will be better adapted to look after the well being of our calves. I'm curious about. The, my wife's pregnant right now. And I'm curious, how do you incubate? I guess that would be the word. Like, how do you incubate the specimen, the mammoth, mm-hmm. so it can grow for those, did you say 20, 22 months or something? Yeah, yeah. The gestation is 22 months for elephants. Yes. Yeah, it's a, an excellent question. I think on the short term goal, we'll still explore some of the more uh, classical approaches, uh, such as somatic cell nuclear transfer with a surrogacy option. However, that is not something that we want to pursue long-term. Uh, in fact, that is why Colossal is very excited and passionate about pursuing ex-utero uh, development for the Arctic elephants. That means how can we achieve the full gestation from conception to birth uh, outside of uh, surrogates? And I think that is essential, especially when we talk about Colossal's efforts in, the, in light of conservation, because you don't want to burden already endangered species with birthing calves when they're already under pressure from a lot of uh, factors that threaten their existence. And so those are some of our more long-term goals, uh, which we have, of course, begun to address and begun work on. And we're very, very excited about those. I'm personally very excited about being able to provide 
whether it's a device, biobag, an ex-utero approach to gestation. Are there currently ex-utero applications? Like, is that something that exists in life today? Can we grow anything ex-utero? Yeah, there's been some interesting work done. Uh, I can highlight one from a Pennsylvania group, which uh, did late-term gestation of lambs in what's called a biobag. And so that was quite exciting work. They were, of course, interested in potential applications for uh, premature babies. We are, of course, interested in, in conservation of endangered animals and how we can scale up the numbers. So you can gestate multiple individuals at the same time, multiple uh, embryos, uh, and later on fetuses at the same time, uh, while not uh, burdening the, the surrogate. And so what it would look like, I, I don't think I can sort of like talk more about it at this point, but definitely it will be some sort of like device or biobag-like structure that could contain or sustain uh, the embryo to full gestation. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems like there's several different options and then that's what we do. We science stuff. Yeah, We just yeah. test the different options, see what works. And you, know, you said Arctic elephants. Is that another word for woolly mammoth or is that something different? I think so. Uh, our, our approaches are sort of like more the immediate work versus a little bit more long-term work. And for the immediate work, I think for the changes uh, that we will be implementing, an elephant background to make them adaptable to cold environment would be sufficient to call this organism an Arctic elephant. It's essentially an elephant that has adaptation to a colder climate. So we think of them as uh, sort of lighter versions, like version 1.0 and more uh, later on. So at the beginning, I think it's a more accurate way to describe our work as um, being able to generate uh, an Arctic elephant. Okay, so Arctic elephant, then woolly with all, mammoth. Yeah, with all the phenotypes of a woolly mammoth. Okay, nice. Why this? Why not a dodo bird? Like, why choose this sort of prehistoric creature? Oh, that's an excellent question. Colossal is the, the extinction company, so we are actually interested in other species as well mm-hmm. uh, down the line. But we're going to take it one thing at a time, <laughs> of course. To be able to do a de-extinction is by no means sort of like a very easy path, right? There are challenges associated with it. But for the woolly mammoth, for multiple reasons, I think the most important is that all the extant elephant species are endangered and therefore conferring some sort of cold adaptation that allows them to survive in a habitat that's mostly unpopulated and away from human animal encroachment could be a benefit to the endangered elephant population. So we believe that that's, in addition to ex- the extinction, is essentially a conservation with a twist, right? We, uh, it's a parallel path to, to saving the elephants. The other reason is because we have a lot of specimens that are trapped in the permafrost, both in North America and in Siberia. The spread of the woolly mammoth during the Pleistocene and, uh, and early Holocene was quite extensive. And so we have a lot of specimens that are trapped in the permafrost, so we have access to a lot of sequences of DNA. Some of them that have already been, the genomes uh, that have already been sequenced and some of them that glossal as well as other uh, scientists are actually going to generate over time. So in addition to having the genome of one individual, we have sort of like a population-based genomic overview of the species itself and across time as well, because we have older woolly mammoths and newer woolly mammoths. So we get to know a little bit about their evolution as well. So we have just this treasure of specimen that we can uh, we can research and we will know the genomic sequences of. And so that, that helps when you're doing the extinction efforts because you understand the genotype-phenotype relationships better. And then you can also, when you, we're talking about herds in the future, and so you want enough uh, genetic biodiversity in the population for them to thrive and survive without the intervention of men. 
In addition to the aforementioned reasons, also uh, the aspect of climate change effects. So we believe that, and other scientists have done uh, great work on looking at the mammoth steppe ecosystem as a very, very biodiverse and rich ecosystem. And the woolly mammoth being sort of like the iconic species from that era. Uh, that meant that it sustained quite a biodiverse ecosystem. And with the loss of the woolly mammoth, seemed the whole uh, ecosystem changed and it's quite poor. There are not that uh, many animals. At least I, I've been able to travel to Siberia, so I've seen it firsthand. That is, there are not that many animals uh, uh, in Siberia currently. The, 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 the uh, habitats and the ecosystem has changed a bit. It's, it's turned from uh, grassland, which was quite prominent in the mammoth steppe ecosystem, to shrubs and coniferous trees. So with the warming of the climate, there's a lot of organic mass that's trapped in the permafrost is being released uh, in the form of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So that's mitigating uh, some of the climate uh, effects. And so we believe that with the restoration of a healthy biodiverse ecosystem, like the mammoth steppe ecosystem, with the woolly mammoth being you know, the iconic species, we believe that we can restore the health of the ecosystem and potentially this restoration, the fauna and flora of that particular ecosystem will kind of act like a sponge, keeping the organic matter that's trapped in the permafrost recycled uh, rather than being released in the atmosphere. So for a lot of reasons, we believe that the woolly mammoth is a great uh, species to go after for the extinction and conservation efforts in a thoughtful, ethical manner. But again, by no means are we uh, interested only in that one. Of course, uh, down the line, we'll be interested in um, selecting other species for the extinction. Who doesn't love the woolly mammoth? It's and such who doesn't a cute... love the woolly mammoth? Yeah. It's uh, very cuddly. I believe it's cuddly. Yeah. From the looks of it. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> we will. <laughs> I was reading on the website something about like 30,000 species a year are going extinct. And when I saw that, I thought, okay, that's pretty crazy. That's a lot. But don't new species come too? And so I did a basic Google search. So you feel free to correct me. But then they said something along the lines of like 46 new species an hour. It was less than the 30,000 for sure. I think it was like 11 or 18,000 a year are created or found or discovered. But that still leaves a net negative, right? Is that information correct or am I interpreting that wrong? I'll take your word for it. I'll probably have to double check. So in, in this case, I'll just take your word for it. I think my, my thoughts would be that what Colossal uh, is doing is like providing a, a parallel path to conservation in case we want to bring back species that are uh, iconic and that are needed for healthy ecosystems. And the woolly mammoth, you know, fits the description, right? I think restoration of the woolly mammoth and um, healthy, thriving populations of woolly mammoth, uh, Arctic elephants uh, initially would provide many, many benefits um, not just restoration of the ecosystem itself, but as I mentioned, uh, climate change and also climate change uh, benefits as well, uh, or mitigation of, and also trying to save the extent uh, elephant populations. But I think, yes, while there are new species that emerge, every time there is a, a species that is lost, uh, it leaves behind a big hole and it can actually potentially even uh, degrade the, that ecosystem altogether. And that's actually what happened with the mammoth step ecosystem. The, the loss of the woolly mammoth or the absence of the woolly mammoth from that ecosystem is associated with a dearth of biodiversity. And so we can all agree that healthy biodiverse ecosystems uh, that thrive are actually beneficial to the planet as a whole, but even to us as a, as a species, because we learn so much from the animals and other species that populate Earth. For example, uh, on the elephant front, 
we know that they have uh, multiple copies uh, of this TP53 gene that makes organisms somewhat resistant to cancer. And they're known to have reduced cancer rates compared to other longer living species. So that's just one of the things that you learn from studying the genomes of existing species. And, and preserving this biodiversity for their sake and for our sake, I think it's, it's uh, everyone can agree that I think it's, it's a very noble cause. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm I, I'm on team. I'm on your team. We're on the same team. I'm just curious, and and I was sort of setting the tone for this like next conversation I want to have about we're losing species thirty thousand a year. We're gaining them at some number per year. When I think about saving species that are going out, like an elephant, I'm all about it. Right? I'm like, oh, those they're beautiful creatures. I love them. That's cool. Let's save an elephant, but. When I think about making a new one, I feel like that would be like a lot of ethical issues and people would really not like that. They would say, you're playing God or something. You know, They wouldn't like us tinkering and making new ones. Nature is making thousands of new ones just autonomously right now. Have you ever thought about, can this technology in the future somehow lend itself to creating new ones? Uh, yeah, I mean, in a way, if you can think about the, the Arctic elephant, it's a little bit of a mix of two different species, right? But I have to say that I think when people mention scientists playing God, I mean, there are, of course, valid criticisms, but at the same time, humans have, have done this a little bit ever since we, we've uh, evolved uh, bigger brains. And I think you can sort of like just look at one of the more common instances is sort of like the many breeds of dogs we have. I mean, that's man-made, essentially. And crops, selective breeding of a lot of plants. We've done that, not nature. And so I think there are a lot of instances where uh, human intervention has led to a lot of benefits for society. You know, thinking of novel ways for conservation also, I think, I believe strongly that it's, uh, and it's a beneficial thing for society. Now, on the ethics, absolutely. I mean, you do, and we do that as well. We actually have people uh, on our scientific advisory board who, are very str- who very strongly think about the ethics of what we're doing. I think actually we, we believe very strongly in the radical transparency of our work. We, we could have done this hidden without anyone knowing, but we want to engage the public and we want to hear what they have to say, their feedback, because that really matters. And we want to also change minds. We also want to show that this is one way to do it. Is it the only way to do it for a lot of species? I think it's a case-by-case consideration. In the case of the elephants, they're quite large and quite uh, trackable, I think I would say. And so uh, the benefits definitely outweigh the cons in this case. So, yeah, personally, I view this, I view our efforts as very radically transparent. Uh, everything uh, is for people to see. I mean, we have a quite an extensive website with a lot of information and we're very open. We're, of course, very uh, active on social media as well, where people can reach us and ask questions to us directly. But also, as I said, it's a case by case consideration for whether to bring or to save a species or not, depending on whether you even have a habitat or an ecosystem that can sustain their growth and their survival. And in the case of the woolly mammoth Arctic elephants, it's still very much, while it's changed a little bit, it hasn't changed radically for it not to sustain a return of the woolly mammoth, right? So you need to have the ecosystem or you need to have the habitat to sustain that species. Modern medicine has saved a lot of uh, people as well. So advanced transparent progress and technologies have saved lives. And we just believe that we can apply a lot of those technologies to saving animals uh, as well. And so, and a, a lot of what we will build for the pipeline of the extinction and conservation can also in return 
be used for species such as ourselves for health and disease, because much of the genome engineering tools that are used for mammalian uh, uh, editing are the same. With some tweaking, they're the same. So a lot of the tools we will build can also very uh, easily apply to applications for human health and disease. So it's kind of like a circle, right? Uh, we use the technologies that are built for humans and other species for, in this case, Arctic elephants, but also more uh, tools that we build can benefit uh, other animals. And, and that includes also uh, humans as well. Have you seen Jurassic Park? I have. Uh, I know that we get a lot of that uh, comparison. Uh, <laughs> no, I was just curious. So here's okay. the follow-up question. Uh-huh. Is an emphasis on transparency partly due to the bad things that happen when you're not transparent in Jurassic Park? I think it's transparency is, I have to say that as a scientist, we sometimes do get this criticism of us not being transparent with our work, regardless of whether it is the extinction or some other work, right? So just we have a reputation for, I think a lot of the public may have perception that we're doing crazy things behind uh, closed doors. But I think for, for, um, for challenging, ambitious and pioneering and also boundary pushing projects is even more important to actually be very open with the public as to why we're doing this. In fact, I think we get a lot of encouragement from the public, right? I think a lot of people are interested in saving the species and a lot of, while we believe that this is a parallel approach to some of the traditional conservation efforts, conservation efforts, at least the traditional ones, have worked only minimally so far, right? So we, there is that urgency to try to innovate on that front as well, just like with innovate on a lot of aspects of life. And just putting all your bas- uh, all your eggs in one basket probably is not the right strategy, yeah, even in conservation. And with this project in particular, I think since a lot of people ask whether you know we should do this, I think we're even more engaged with the public as to uh, why we are doing this, why it's a good thing. I mean, there, there's di- uh, a lot of species are in dire need of help, and I think this is an innovative way to do so, uh, taking advantage of a lot of the prog- progress that's happened in synthetic biology and uh, genome engineering. The business side of things is, like, how do you get funding to do this? What's the commercialization ultimately? Another aspect that I feel like I can claim my limitations is actually the business side. As a scientist, I'm not that concerned at all about that aspect. The cool thing about our investors and about our, our leadership is that they want us to focus on the science and I'm very passionate about focusing on the science. The business side of it uh, does not affect my work on the day-to-day too much, but I do have to say that, uh, and so I also have to mention that uh, a lot of our investors believe uh, a lot in our project and they sort of like a passion, a hobby, rather than something that they, they have invested because they want to make money out of it. Having said that, I think our company has, of course, we believe that the tools we build as we progress in our goals can be applicable to, as I mentioned, uh, applications outside of the extinction and conservation. And we can talk about potentially at that, at that stage about licensing or allowing these tools to be used for those applications. So that's one aspect of the business development side. I'll write your official answer as exotic animal restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. kidding. There'll be no restaurants involved. (laughs) I know, right? I talked to this one scientist who was cloning salmon. So he took the part of the salmon you would eat and he figured out how to clone those cells so you can grow salmon in the lab. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I'm actually very, very interested in the great work that's happening across a lot of labs and companies currently. I'm vegetarian myself, so I'm always interested in more interesting food options. I'm a fan of plants, but you know, sometimes you want to look beyond what's uh, for dinner other than plants, right? And so growing meat in a lab, in a dish, is actually quite exciting, uh, precisely for the, the reasons you mentioned, which is you don't have to go back uh, and kill animals. You can just grow them, starting with a cell line. So there's some very, very cool uh, engineering that is happening in that uh, aspect. And I'm personally very, very interested in that. But yes, our efforts don't involve any of that work. <laughs> Can you walk me through, from a high level, the way you get from, okay, we're going to make this Arctic elephant, to actually having the Arctic elephant? Do you immediately run into a lab and just start mixing liquids together? Like, How do you get from idea to reality? Great question. So I think for us, we start with uh, cells from elephants, uh, and we employ... Uh, multiple genome genome editing techniques. We work in collaboration with George Church's laboratory. Uh, So Colossal also licenses a lot of technologies from George Church's lab. So we employ some of these uh, genome editing technologies, most uh, prominently CRISPR-based technologies, Mm -hmm. and we make precise edits on the loci that previously in our comparative studies between uh, species, proboscidean uh, species, such as the mammals and the elephants. So backtracking a little bit, you have to start with the genomic sequences. And that's what we start with. Multiple genomic sequences for extant uh, elephants and the woolly mammoths. And then you run a comparative study looking at the regions of the DNA where they are different from each other. And then you further narrow down, of course, because there are still quite uh, quite a few of them, you further narrow down to areas that could have implication for phenotype. So something, a genetic change that is associated with a trait. And we're interested in cold adaptation traits. And then you implement those changes using um, gene editing tools, such as CRISPR-based tools. Following that, you grow the cells. You can differentiate cells into different lineages so that you can actually uh, uh, try to assess whether you're getting the trait that you're expecting for the genetic change. And then further down, as you screen the cells that you desire that uh, have most of the changes that you, uh, you want to implement from you know, the list, the set of genes that we have narrowed down, from that comparative uh, bioinformatics study. And then, of course, the next step uh, after that would be some of the embryology work associated with nuclear transfer and animal work down the line. But that uh, gene editing and cell engineering and screening step can take potentially two years. All right, so you get the elephant cells, and then you know what the woolly mammoth or the Arctic elephant looks like over here because you have some sort of prehistoric sample, right? And then you look at the differences between them and then you use CRISPR. Well, we know what the woolly mammoths look like. Yeah, yeah. We know what the elephants look like and we know what the woolly mammoths look like and we have genetic information from multiple individuals from each of those species and then you run the comparative study. And then you splice the woolly mammoth over into the elephant. So we, you don't have to splice anything. With, a, with the emergence of synthetic biology, you can synthesize pieces of DNA. Uh, You don't have to port them from a woolly mammoth sample, which is a cool thing about it. All you need to know is the in silico sequence of the genome, and you can actually make any piece of DNA that you desire synthetically. So you can either do that, or you can actually make a precise edit in one single nucleotide with some of the newer CRISPR uh, editing tools. So it's a combination of tools. That's the reason I I mentioned CRISPR-based tools rather than just one tool. Yeah. How do you get the 
you've got a sperm and an egg, right? Is that true for the woolly mammoths? In this case, what Colossal is also interested in is uh, driving these pluripotent stem cell-like cells called iPS cells. Uh, you know, they are evolutionized uh, stem cell biology uh, in human and other species when they were first derived a few years back. The person who invented this technology, uh, Shinya Yamanaka, got the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. With four transcription factors, a minimum of four transcription factors, you can actually generate or reverse the program of a cell, going from a differentiated, fully mature cell to a more pluripotent stem cell-like cell. And from that population, you can derive any other lineage that you desire, including gametes, sperm and egg. So technically, you can start with a, uh, with a cell line from an elephant and derive the sperm and egg from that cell line and never having to go to, uh, to an elephant to retrieve them. Come on now. That's crazy. It is an amazing technology. And it's just such a great technique for conservation as well, because you can actually get as much biological material like blood, which is easy to access for a lot of endangered species and bank it. And then in the future, at least for uh, scientists and Researchers that are interested in doing work for that species, they can derive a lot of uh, cell lineages, including uh, gametes from that banked cell line. So that's very, very exciting work. So you can go dig through the permafrost, find some prehistoric animal, sequence its DNA, and then how do you get from the sequencing the data in the computer to actually having the cells? Yeah, so... A few years back, a few groups were also interested in trying to find an intact viable cell from this mammoth specimen, given that uh, some of them are very well preserved. I mean, if you look at them, you would think that they just passed just the other day. They're just so fresh looking. But because of radiation damage and DNA damage uh, sustained across time, uh, also right after the death of an animal, that it was quickly shown that uh, DNA is highly fragmented in this specimen, no matter how well preserved they are. So finding an intact cell is next to impossible. So the cool thing is that with synthetic biology and genome engineering progress and revolution, you don't need any of that. You don't need to find an intact cell. You just need enough DNA information to derive the full genomic sequence, which we are able to do routinely from this specimen. So that's what we start with. As I said, that sequence, and then you identify the spots where you actually have to make that change. So you compare, of course, you align the elephant sequence to the woolly mammoth sequence, and they are very, very similar. They are uh, the closest living relative of the woolly mammoth is the Asian elephant, and they're uh, roughly 99.6% similar. So that's still a lot of changes, but at least it's uh, very manageable because they're so closely related. And so you look at the spots where they are different from each other, and then you have to integrate the CRISPR-based uh, and other uh, genome editing tools based on the spot uh, you have to change, based, based on that DNA region you have to change. So for areas where you have to make more than one change, maybe potentially it could make sense to make that piece of DNA and then put it in the uh, swap it into the elephant cells. So you can just synthetically make the piece of DNA. For other regions uh, of the elephant genome, just one of the base editing or prime editing tools on the CRISPR side, you can just make one precise change or several nucleotide changes at a time. And you don't need a piece of synthetic DNA for that. Uh, it's just the enzyme that converts one nucleotide to another nucleotide. So there are a variety of tools that you can actually use. So we use a combination of tools. Okay, so you can take the direct woolly mammoth DNA and just clone it synthetically. Like you can take it, put it in a computer, and then the computer you gets... Only need, you only need the in silico sequence, right? And then you can just input that sequence. You know, a lot of providers can actually do that. They can routinely ship you DNA the next day, right? You just send them the sequence of what you would want synthesized 
and then they'll send you the DNA in this tube format, and you can start with that. So you can um, manipulate the DNA that you receive that is synthetically made and then input it or swap it into the, the genome in the cells, in your desired cells or targeted cells. In our case, it's the elephant cells. But if you don't have like an elephant, you have to find some other cells. You can't just do it off of synthetic DNA. Yeah, so interestingly, you can do that. You can actually make a full synthetic genome for prokaryotes. Uh, there's, it's been achieved for uh, multiple strains of bacteria. It's fully synthetic. And uh, there's ongoing efforts for the synthetic yeast as well. The full synthetic yeast genome, right? And the full synthetic bacterial genome. That's been achieved. The mammalian genome is next. We're not quite there yet. So just making it fully synthetic and rebooting a cell, any cell, is probably uh, in the future. Not something that we're interested in doing, but it is something that, uh, especially uh, researchers who, and that also includes um, researchers in George Church's lab, who's interested in uh, the, the next stage from going from sequencing the DNA to writing genomes in this efforts called GPWrite or Genome Project Write. So that's possible, as I said, to do with uh, smaller organisms like bacteria and yeast. And mammalian cells are next because they're much, much larger and more complex. But in this case, because the species are so closely related, you don't have to do that. You don't have to build a genome from scratch. I think it would be actually quite, uh, quite wasteful to do that because the genomes are so, so similar. So gene editing tools uh, are actually quite sufficient, which is why Colossal believes this is just a matter of scaling up these technologies, uh, not whether it's doable or not, but how multiplexable we can make it. I've been following this company for three or four years. They're called Catalog DNA. Uh, they read and write DNA data into DNA. And they started to commercialize about a year and a half ago, I think. And I had them on the show to talk about it. I was like, hey, guys, I've been following the work. And I, I had watched them go from it taking an extremely long time to write a bit of data in DNA to them being able to write several megabytes, I believe, a day in DNA. So they, they essentially, in three or four years, they leaps and bounds push this technology forward to be able to write DNA. And when I was asking them about you know reading it, they said that technology is is advanced for several reasons, like it, it, it gets advanced, you know, because we need to read our DNA for medical reasons, right? So that that's why you would have that technology be more advanced than the writing of DNA technology, right? And so it seems like what you're doing over at Colossal is in the pursuit of doing this Wooly Mammoth project, you're having to push forward various different technologies. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that is more, of course, on the editing side. As I mentioned, sequencing, we've, it's progressed quite a bit. I think the person you talk to is absolutely right. It's, uh, the sequencing also has quite a bit of head start, right, compared to the writing. So, of course, they're a bit more advanced there. And it makes sense to read before you, uh, you write anything. You, know? you need to learn <laughs> a little bit the letters and what's written before you actually start uh, writing uh, and, and composing. But for us, it's mostly we rely on a lot of technologies that are out there with collaborators and, of course, commercial uh, entities for sequencing because we are interested in sequencing more elephants, sequencing more mammoths. The more data we have, the more population-based genomics landscape we can create for the species we're interested in. But we're more interested in multiplexing the editing, right? So while elephants and uh, woolly mammoths are highly similar to each other, it still translates to a lot of changes, even millions of nucleotides across the genome. So going from making one change at a time to making 10,000 or 10, 100, a thousand or ten thousand changes at a time is actually what 
when I was in the church lab, I was very, uh, very, very much interested in that aspect. So multiplex uh, gene editing and what we are interested in uh, uh, now at Colossal. You want to be able to make these changes faster. And if you can, all at once, right? Uh, it's still probably we're not there yet to make all the changes that you want at once, but at least increasing the, the level of multiplexibility for the gene editing and not just one at a time, but multiple at a time is, is crucial to our efforts. We were talking about yeast. I think you said yeast was one of the simpler ones that's fully synthetic. So does that mean me being a scientist in you know, New York, I could take this synthetic yeast, make a couple changes to it in the computer system, send that file, that computer system file, down to a scientist in Florida who could then just print that out in their lab? Print the sequence you mean? Or? Yeah, just like make that yeast in their lab? And that's the goal of the future, right? To just, if you input a sequence, a full sequence that you can get all the genome fully assembled. Because I think what, so in addition to the synthesis technologies that had to advance to make longer and longer pieces of DNA, because short pieces is fine, but if you really want to scale up and, and generate longer pieces, it's a bit more challenging. But I think uh, that's also advanced quite a bit recently and you can actually get it for uh, cheaper and faster. It's still not, Sufficient to so like the scale of what the, what any genome and particularly a mammalian genome looks like, right? I think it's three gigs of nucleotide sequence. It's still quite a bit uh, for like a a general mammalian genome. So yeah, the, the dream is in the future to be able to just input that sequence, which we have it. We have multiple of them. Uh, in the case of humans, we have hundreds and thousands of these genomic sequences around. So being being able to input uh, and then outcomes uh, a fully assembled genome because the assembly of these short pieces together uh, is actually also a challenging uh, aspect of synthetic biology. So you can do that, as I mentioned, with smaller genomes like bacteria and yeast, but when you go to something like a mammalian genome, it's a bit more challenging. It's still doable, but it takes years uh, or, or it takes a long time, at least with the current technology. So yeah, I think printing a full genome would be something that We'll, we would all be very, very excited uh, to see in the very near future. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. I think the Church Lab has, the Church Lab and others have actually generated these synthetic bacterial genomes by assembling uh, pieces of DNA together. And that's more routine now that you can actually achieve it within a few years, within a couple of years or so. For longer DNA, for longer genomes, I think uh, you would need a little bit more time. But we are, we are heading towards that achievement. I think it's just a matter of time. Maybe by next year. <laughs> <laughs> you do need to, I do have to say it's not as easy as it sounds sometimes because you do need to take that genome back into a cell to reboot it. Given that it's a large piece of DNA, it's not like the cells are very, very happy to intake so much DNA at a time. So it was. it's going to be a, a fairly inefficient process there. But again, I think starting with an intact genome is actually um, already major progress. And so the next step would be, you just have to, it's a lot of iteration. It's just a matter of time. So it seems like you like animals a lot. I do. Uh, is there any particular species that you're most concerned about going extinct right now? Uh, elephants. I mean, I'm biased here, but elephants for sure. Uh, they just have also so much, we can learn so much from them. They have long lifespans. They are resistant to cancer. They We don't know much about them. They're a little bit of an out group as well among mammals. Uh, so we just need to, we want to be able to learn as much from what they're hiding in their genome, their genomic sequ uh, secrets as possible. And, and that hopefully can also educate us how to save them. But yeah, I'm very, very biased towards uh, elephants. For you to get this far, you must have 
great leadership and organizational abilities. When you look back at where you started when you were 16, when you came here to the United States to where you have gotten today, what sort of habits do you think that you have or traits that have allowed you to have the success that you've had? Uh, I mean, drive is definitely one of them. Passion for science. I'm a lot of scientists have this, uh, especially biologists, right? We're just naturally very curious. And sometimes just a little bit of risk taking, which is interesting because scientists don't, we're not all risk takers, right? But a little bit of risk taking is good. <laughs> and so actually I learned that over time a little bit more, especially uh, being in George's, uh, George's lab. You just push the boundaries a bit uh, in terms of what's achievable, right? I think, I think one of the things that I learned from, from George is he does mention that some of the projects are just a postdoc lives away, right? So just a few years uh, away from uh, being completed or being achieved. And you don't know that that's the case when you start, but, but it can be the case. Um, so yeah, just natural curiosity, uh, drive, and also working with uh, great individuals, right? I think you need to be in a great environment, in a nurturing environment. Uh, to satisfy your curiosity. In a way, if you're in an environment where your ideas are shut down, it's a little bit more difficult to to pursue them uh, or think seriously about them. And I think if you're in the right environment, you can do great things. And I've been very fortunate with my career trajectory so far, learning all about stem cells during my PhD, learning all about synthetic biology during my postdoc. And now I get a chance to play and use that background and that expertise play around a little bit in the lab with some of the cool technologies uh, and of course apply it to something serious and important like the extinction conservation. Do you get to spend much time in the lab? During uh, P- my PhD as, as well as during a postdoc, yes. I mean, in a way we're, we're married to the lab and <laughs> at that stage of training. Right now it's of course a lot of, we have, a, our team is, is growing. We have amazing talent. So of course it's about a lot of moving pieces that have to operate smoothly. So I do spend, I do have to confess that I, I spend a lot of time in meetings now. I, that also is a derivative of our lab being in two different places as well. We are located in Dallas and we're located in Boston. So we do need a little bit of coordination there, which is very, very exciting. Yeah, and a growing team. So, so uh, because of that, I do spend uh, a little bit more time in meetings, but I do make sure to block times in my schedule to actually do work in the lab. I'm still very much involved with lab work uh, myself. And recently in particular, I've been interested in the pluripotent stem cell work for elephants. And so they are, compared to other species, a little bit tricky to derive pluripotent stem cells from. And so uh, we're very focused on that as well, because it's just such a crucial, as I mentioned before, it's such a crucial part for conservation to be able to derive these cells that have the potential to become any cell type in the body. So in a way, you don't have to do any animal work because you can actually work with these cell culture models that you can develop into uh, more complex models, either 3D or organoid uh, cultures. Yeah, my uh, stepmom and my brother are both doctors and my stepmom is really into studying the stem cells and how they're using them to help quadriplegic people regain some function. Yeah, stem cell potential is immense in so many areas, cell therapeutics, of course. When I started my training, uh, my doctoral training, actually, it was researchers had, had been doing work in embryonic stem cells for a while. Uh, at that time, there was also a lot of controversy uh, associated with uh, using embryonic stem cell lines derived from discarded IBF embryos. And then th- this Japanese group with Shinya Manaka being the leader of, that, uh, of those efforts 
comes along and just is using only four transcription factors, four genes to derive the same uh, cell type as what you derive from these discarded embryos, this uh, blastocyst Mm -hmm. stage of their development. And so that was quite exciting because it revolutionized the whole stem cell field. And given that you can derive any cell lineage from them, uh, you can imagine how much work is going into making blood cells, uh, making neuronal cells from the iPS cells. And it's incredible work. And it can save species as well. Just recently, there, were, there was a great paper showing some early development from northern white rhino uh, iPS cells. As you know, there are only two northern white rhinos left. And so for all intents and purposes, uh, the species is extinct because they cannot reproduce. And being able to actually bank some of these cells that you can derive pluripotent stem cells from and, and then be able to actually generate a full, full organism from these cells is, uh, is going to be uh, so essential for conservation work. Why, why can't the rhinos, if there's two of them, why can't they reproduce? I think they're past their production age. Uh. And I think there's been multiple cycles of egg retrieval that have rendered them slightly resistant to more successful egg retrievals. So, but there, there are cells that are banked from northern white rhino. So there is, uh, there is definitely very, a lot of hope there. But at least on the natural front, uh, there's only two individuals that no longer reproduce. So until these IPS stem cell efforts and, and cloning efforts are successful, the species is, um, seems to be extinct. So they were trying, they have these two white rhinos left, and they're, they were trying to... No, they have. They actually have retrieved eggs, uh, which is... Okay, they retrieved yeah, eggs. Yeah, uh, which is... And so they, they, they have retrieved eggs in the past, just not, not... It can no longer be the case. So there are some embryonic stem cells, actually, that are derived from the northern white rhino. So, yeah, so there is hope there. But just, at least uh, currently, there are only two individuals. So by current standards, we can consider them extinct. I'd still give it one more shot. I'd put them both in the room, put on some R&B music. (laughs) (laughs) This is great. I am so happy there are people like you out there pushing these things forward because it's super, super cool. These platforms are crucial. I'm very, very thankful for the invitation and being able to also share a lot of the work we do and our goals through these kind of platforms is absolutely essential. And so... I'm very fortunate and very thankful that that's the case here. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.